what is worship? What is worship? Now, I know public schools are out tomorrow, and so most of the kids are, are off tomorrow. If you're homeschool, just talk to your mom and dad and just remind them that everybody else has a day off. But let, let me give you a little quiz. So we want to keep your minds active, especially you young people. You, it's too late for the older people, so our minds have been inactive for many years. No, multiple choice question, just two options. One, what is, what is worship is the question. Is it A, the songs we sing in church before the pastor gets up to preach? Or is it B, something so powerful that even when done by infants, it's used by God to slay His enemies? Now some of you are saying, isn't there a C, like a none of the above here or something? <laughs> I mean, which one is it? I mean, if we're honest, we tend to think of the word worship in terms of A. Now I realize you, you have a, most of you have a fuller understanding of what worship is, but we, we, we tend to use the word, at least in that context. We think of it in, in what we do on Sunday mornings between the welcome and between uh, the, the sermon. And so we have a worship, we have a worship team and a worship pastor and a, and a worship budget. And so we, we, have, we, have the, that, we use it in that way. But you're smart people. You are. I know you are. And so you can see where I'm going with this little quiz. And we just read Psalm 8. But if I were, if we, if we passed out a fill-in-the-blank quiz when we came in, when you walked in the door and the question was, what is worship? And you, you gave a definition. You would probably give great definitions and it wouldn't be like A, I don't think. And, and you, would, you would describe it in many ways. But I doubt anybody would use the wording of answer B in that question to describe worship. I probably would not either. But that's what verse 2 says. And now we'll explain this more in a moment. But it says, Out of the ba- mouths of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. Now, babies and infants, I think we understand what that is. Same in Bible times as our time. It's just, it's children, this refers to an age of children when they're still helpless. They're still dependent upon others. Fully dependent upon other people, other adults. And so, so, and again, in the context, he's, he's talking about praise. This is a praise psalm, and we'll say more about that in a moment. Have you tried to sing with kids that age? Oh, it's cute. <laughs> but it's not like people don't pay money to go hear an infant sing. It's not, uh, it's not auditory, you know, just beauty. Um, it's cute, and we video it and all that. But, but that's not, we don't enjoy it for its beauty. I, just, I thought this was very funny. And so I'm reading it. Um, This is one author's thoughts. I read this this week. Looking back on his elementary school music teacher. So as an adult, thinking back about his his music teacher in grade school. He said, The audience exploded into applause every time our conductor and teacher, Mr. Martin, walked in. Parents regard band teachers with a combination of awe and respect, the way you might a war hero. How could any human being spend eight hours per day enduring the acoustic violence created by 50 children playing their instrument all at once. (laughs) In the hands of the untrained or untalented, a clarinet is a lethal weapon. (laughs) I think some of you probably could, that probably resonates with you, but as you say, if if someone tells you after the service today, you really sing like a baby, that's not a compliment. Um, and so just keep that in mind. He's saying out of the mouths of babies and infants, yet you, you've established strength. 
And so, but, but this is the picture in Psalm 8, this, this contrast. You have, just picture these big, when, he, when he's talking about his, his enemies, and these are war enemies. These are, just picture big, brutish, muscle-bound, you know, hairy-chested, smelly, violent adversaries. And then babbling babies and infants, crawling infants. And so, and the strength that God establishes through the, through the mouths of these little ones is considered by almost all commentators as the strength of praise. And we don't even have to go to the commentators, but this is how the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament, understood the meaning of Psalm 8. This is how Jesus understood these words. Jesus quoted Psalm 8 2 uh, after the triumphal entry, after he cleansed the temple. In Jerusalem, so toward the end of his life, Matthew twenty-one twenty-five, the the children were crying out in the temple, "Hosanna to the Son of David!" And so, when that was happening, the chief priests and the scribes, kind of the religious elite of the day, they they hear this, and they the text says they became indignant. They're just furious that these kids are saying these things about. Jesus, and not furious at the kids so much as they're furious at Jesus for not silencing them. And they said to Jesus, do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? Just stop there. Ouch. I mean, these are the religious gurus. These are the the guys that are known for reading the Scriptures. And Jesus says, have you never read? In your life read these words out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And so and, the, and it just left the religious leaders catatonic. So what's verse two saying? It's saying God's praise is powerful. It's, it's powerful. It packs a punch. Worship isn't just the little part of the service where we sing. Worship is warfare. Even say, especially when it comes from sources we would consider weak, like babies and infants. Sometimes the most powerful weapon in the in the arsenal of God is not is not our arguments, it's not our eloquence, it's it's simply praise. And and even the most humblest, the most humble, the weakest, the most seemingly humanly inconsequential person can and believer can wield that. Powerfully, and so I just say to us: Does your life, does does your tongue, run more quickly quickly to argument or to praise? Not trite, you know, just praise the Lord, PTL kind of thing, but thoughtful, expressive thanksgiving and praise to God. Praise is potent, and I I don't know what that does for you to to see verse two, and we're we're, we're just entering into the psalm here, but that makes me want to praise the Lord and to worship Him. Not because I'm the character, I don't remember his name, from the Lego movie, and everything is awesome all the time. If you're, say, I got, we got no teenagers here, so nobody's backing me up on this, but trust me, it's a line and a song and a movie. It's not because I had such an amazing morning and, you know, I woke up before the alarm clock and, and uh, had this incredible quiet time, undisturbed, and, oh, you know, it was just so, so amazing and the kids didn't, 
lose their shoes and get and we're here on time. It's not it's not because everything's just my life's firing on all cylinders. No, even if you dragged yourself in here today, weak and weary and tired, or if you were dragged in here today, <laughs> weak and weary and tired, when you worship and you're weak, you're stronger than when you're doing anything else at full strength. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you've established strength. you prepared praise. So praise the Lord. So David says this, and, and having shown us what worship does, he gives us big reasons why we should worship. And so this morning, it's really very simple. This, is, this psalm is sort of kind of the threshold that's going to get us into Genesis next Week and so this psalm is a creation and and man and the image of God and and again he's basically quoting Genesis one here and so I wanted us to look here and then we're going to be in Genesis one next week but this is this isn't Dave's not giving David's not giving us a lecture on worship he's he's simply calling us to praise the Lord it's a song of praise for all seasons so he and he speaks in the first person in the psalm you notice that. But as the heading indicates, with, as with many psalms, it's, it's a song intended for public worship. This isn't just a private song for you to sing alone. The, psalm, the, the, the inscription at the beginning, To the choir master, according to the getith, a psalm of David. Now we have no idea what the getith is. There's ideas and opinions. It's prob- it seems to be something from Gath, which was that Philistine territory. So either an instrument that they played or a tune that they you know, sung songs to. It's something like that. But the, my point is this is a song that's to be sung together as a choir. This is to the choir master. And, and, and whatever is going on in your life today, brothers and sisters, whatever's happening, you can join and sing to the Lord and exalt His majestic and glorious name. Join the choir today and sing to Him. Even if it's a weak source, it's strong. His praise. So what do we sing? Just three reasons. Three reasons to join the choir and to belt out God's praise today. No matter what's going on in your life. First reason is this. We're going to sing His praise for the staggering enormity of creation. The staggering enormity of creation. Now, David, David was privileged to see the night sky like few of us have probably ever really seen it. We were in Colorado in September, and my dad has a place out there in the western slope of Colorado, and it's out in the middle of nowhere up on this mountain, and a little house up there. And then we had a few nights out there where it was really clear skies and we could go out on the deck and turn all the lights off in the house and, and just stargaze. It's, it was incredible. I mean, there's shooting stars and just so much to see. You just can't, you can't see here because of the light pollution. But I, 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 I can look at the night sky like that and for hours and not really be bored. I can do the same with fire. So... Um, but but it just it's just fascinating. Well, here David, he's a, he's a shepherd. Some think that this psalm was written when he was younger, when he was out in the field. I don't know that that's necessary. To I mean, they say that because of talking about looking at the sky. The reality was 
Everybody lived under the sky in that day. I mean, much of their time is spent outdoors, and even on the roofs of their houses, they would eat and try to stay cool at night. So they're, they're outside looking at the stars often. And so as a shepherd, as a soldier, even as king, David spent a lot of time looking up at the stars. And there was, again, there was almost no light pollution then like we have uh, today. And so those stars just really popped out of the sky. And what David saw when he looked up was this work of art painted by the hand of God. And, and it, it, God's glory on display just splashed across the canvas of, of the sky. And so he says again, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth! You have set Your glory above or upon the heavens. Verse 3, I look at Your heavens, the work of Your fingers, the moon and the stars which You have set in place. And so he sees the, the craftsmanship of, of, of God's hand in the heavens. It's all God's doing. You know, He's emphasizing that. He says, You have set the, Your glory above the heavens. I look at Your heavens, the work of Your fingers, the moon and the stars which You have set in place. I mean, it's, it's, an, it's an echo of Psalm 19.1. The, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. And this is God's doing. Now, He didn't have technology like we have to behold the night sky and to see even deeper into the universe than the naked eye allows. He simply looked up with his eyes, physical eyes, and saw the glory of God reflected in the sky. Now, on a good, clear, dark night, um, David probably could have seen you know, a few thousand stars with his uh, naked eye. If, if, if David could have, you know, we could have sent back to him a pair of a good pair of binoculars in his day, he probably could have seen a hundred thousand stars through those binoculars. He didn't really have a clue what was out there, other than you know, just knowing that this massive universe is declaring the glory of God. Just, I've got this quote on the screen. Uh, just listen to this. If the Milky Way galaxy were the size of the entire continent of North America, our solar system, sun and planets, would fit in a coffee cup. The vast, this vast neighborhood of our sun fits along with several billion other stars and their minions in the Milky Way, one of perhaps a hundred billion such galaxies in the universe. Now that's staggering. <laughs> and, the, and the reality is, none of this was hard for God. It's, it's child's play for the Lord. He just spun it off the tips of His fingers. It's really spoke these things, but using that anthropomorphic language, he's, he's, it's the work of His hands. He does it without breaking a sweat. And, and it's just not hard. And so we ask the question, why? Why so big? Why so extravagant? Why didn't He just create our planet? Why didn't He just create our solar system why did not even just our galaxy why why billions of other galaxies why to declare his glory to us to declare his glory to us there's it's only something so big something we can't possibly get our minds around only that is sufficient enough 
to, to, to communicate the greatness and glory of our God. And so, so David beholds these wonders and it's just, how majestic is your name, Lord? I mean, what impact does this have on us in understanding this and seeing the heavens declaring the glory of God? It does several things, but one of the things it does is it gives us this heaping helping of perspective, which is something we so desperately need in our lives, isn't it? I mean, I often lose my perspective, my life, my concerns, my worries, my fears, my task lists, my schedule, my inbox my problems, my social media feed, my enemies, all of these things, they seem so huge in my life. And I can just be paralyzed by all of these different things. And then I consider the enormity of the universe that God has made. And, and it humbles my pride. It makes me feel small. Not in a crushing way, but in a, in a, in a good way. And, and it calms my fears. Not so much because it, it makes my troubles small. I'm not minimizing the reality of pains and pressures that you may be facing. That's not the point. But it, it helps me because it gives me perspective so that I can see all of those real troubles and pressures against the backdrop of God and how great He is. And so... This is, this is so important for us. So, so we joined the choir. We belt out God's praise. Why? Because he, he created this universe. And He holds it all together. And it just flaunts His glory. This is one reason we have to, to sing His praise. And there's another. And connecting with that, there, the, it, this is a famous quote, but this explorer, William uh, Beebe, who... He famously wrote about um, a time that he spent with uh, Theodore Roosevelt at, at Roosevelt's home. And this is his account of, of those times together. At Sagamore Hill, Theodore Roosevelt and I used to play a little game together. After an evening of talk, we would go out on the lawn and search the skies until we found the faint spot of light mist beyond the lower left-hand corner of the great square of Pegasus. This was before Netflix, so this is what people did for leisure activities. And, and um, so they, they would do this. And then, then one, of, one, of the other, one or the other would, of us would recite this. This is what they would say every time they were together and looking at this. That is the spiral galaxy of Andromeda. It is as large as our Milky Way. It is one of a hundred million galaxies. It consists of one billion suns each one larger than our sun. <laughs> then Roosevelt would grin and say, now I think we are small enough, let's go to bed. <laughs> and that, that's the thought process that you, sh- that you go through as you grasp the enormity of all that God has made. Who am, who am I? I am nothing. I am, I am so small. Good night. I mean, we're specks of dust, as it were, on this speck of a du- of dust planet, and this speck of dust um, solar system, and this speck of gust, dust galaxy. And, and so David says in verse 3, When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? 
What is a man? So, a second reason that we're given in this psalm to, to, to join the choir, to belt out God's praise is this. It's for the absolute absurdity of humanity's position in creation. Of His privileged position. I mean, if God is to be praised for the vastness of what He's created, where does that leave us? That's the kind of the, the idea of, this, of these verses here. Why would God pay attention to what's going on in this teeny tiny corner of the vast universe? And so we see this, the enormity of God's glory in creation, verses 1 and 2, it's matched only by the enormity of His grace in creating and caring for us. That's what David's just in awe of. This is why he's praising the Lord. And when David exclaims, what is man? He's not, he's not asking a question so much as he's making an exclamation. He's, he's, he's full of this just stupefied wonder and joy at the absurdity of God's care for us. That God, the God who holds all of that astronomical vastness together up there, that God has concern for mere man, humanity. One commentator said, it gives David liturgical goosebumps. So he's not just asking, what is man? But he's really saying, what a God! What grace! That's that's what this question is. This isn't a you know philosophical question. Hmm, what is man? And we just kind of stare at each other and come up with ideas and <coughs> that kind of thing. <coughs> it's not that so much as it's an <coughs> excuse me, an exclamation of doxology. It's praise. It's not a little mental teaser. It's celebratory worship. What is man in light of who you are and what you've made? But look at what David does next. He asks a question that's not really a question, but what, in, what informs him of his understanding of God's mindfulness of man? What, what does he get this from? Verse 5 again. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. What is that? Where does that come from? Genesis. Genesis 1. 26-28. It's it's Genesis 1, 26-28 in poetic form. That's what it is. And and so despite our itty-bitty size in this enormous universe, there's something utterly unique about us. And I mean, if you create a continuum of every created thing in the universe and you kind of charted that out um, from bacteria or something like that all the way up to angels, we'd be like right up there next to angels. Now, compared to God, we have more in common with a, a moth flying around this room or something than we do with God because He is Creator and we are created. We are made. And there's a an enormous gap between creature and creator. But of all that God created, we are unique. We are unique. And we're going to talk a lot about this when we get to that portion in Genesis. And I'm restraining my tongue from going there now. Um, Because I was talking with the students Friday night about this and preparing for Genesis. And, And so, 
Men and women alone have been made in God's image and crowned with glory and honor. We have this unique role in the universe. We have been been given dominion over all that God has made. Animals are things. They're not people. Contrary to what Peter might say. I mean, as I, we talked about this again a lot on Friday night with the students and just looking at Genesis 1. What is man? We are one made and we are image bearers. We're creatures and we're image bearers. This is, this is foundational. We alone bear God's image. Dogs don't bear the image of God. Um, frogs don't bear the image of God. Cats bear the image of Satan. And... Uh, no. But people... Male and female are image bearers of God. Image bearers of God. And the reason David knows that, the, the reason David knows that, and the reason David knows that God pays attention, the reason David knows God cares about male and female, about men and women, about you, the reason he knows that is what? So the Bible tells him so. He knows the Scriptures. He knows what God has revealed in Genesis 1. How does he know that man counts? Where does he get this from? From the Bible. He gets this word from the outside. God speaks into, in, into our story. And he tells us who we are. He tells us what sets us apart. He tells us why he's made the universe. And he tells us why he cares for us. God said again, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over all creation. So we're not scratching and wondering about the question, oh, what, is, what is man? And just trying to discern that on our own by gazing at our navel or something like that. That's not it. We, we have an answer. Man is not an accident, as paganism would say. Man is not nothing, as nihilism would say. Man is not alone, as the humanists say. Man is not simply a highly developed animal like naturalism that so dominates the worldview in the West says. Man is not simply matter in motion as materialism says. No, man is created by God in His image and given this privileged status in the order of creation. That's what David's testifying to. Not Again, he's not arguing the point. He's just he's extolling God for this reality and praising Him. He's, man bears the image, likeness of God. And we'll talk more again about what that means in, in a few weeks here. But just very simply, the image of God, it just means that we are like God and we represent God. And we bear His image. So we, we, and again, we don't hold to this position because we finally figured out by human reason and by um, any, any other reason what our place is. It's, it's not just by postulating that man is some higher life form than an earthworm. It's not it. It's God condescended and told us. And so our identity comes from God. It's been revealed to us by God in the Scriptures. And again, we're going to start next Sunday looking at the beginning of the biblical revelation in Genesis 1. And in a few weeks, Lord willing, we'll be in verses 26 to 28. Well, that all sounds great, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, humanity made in God's image, ruling as the Lord's sort of vice regent over the whole of the created order. But there's a little problem 
that makes us suspicious. Is this really true? As we read that, and, and then there's this little word, all. And we, we scratch our heads a little bit. There, in verse 6, look at it, verse 6, Psalm 8, verse 6, there's that little word, all, or in your translation it may say everything. And, and it sits there like, like, and, and just throbs like a sore thumb. And it's in the emphatic position in the verse. Verse 6, again, You have given Him dominion over the works of your hands. And then this is the emphasis in the Hebrew. All things you have put under His feet. Is that your experience though? And we don't see this in our lives. We don't see man ruling and controlling the whole of the created order. And why do I say that? Cancer seems to rule. We've all been touched by that. Other diseases seem to rule. Tragedies rule. Hurricanes rule. Wildfires rule. Warlords, political tyrants seem to rule. Animals attack us and kill us. I mean, when Adam sinned that imago Dei, that image of God, it wasn't lost, but it was corrupted. It was distorted and, and maimed. And, and, and part of that corruption is the loss of the allness of our privileged status. We still bear the image of God. We still, we still are, um, are, are ruling and subjugating creation. But the reality of our experience is that it's not, it's not that allness is not there like we read in verse 6. It just doesn't seem to square with our reality. But, the second Adam, first Adam lost it, or didn't lose it, but it was distorted when he sinned. But the second Adam, Jesus Christ, Hebrews 2 tells us, was made for a little while lower than the angels. And He was crowned with glory and honor. Look at the wording. He was crowned with glory and honor with everything put in subjection under His feet. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say that at the present, we do not see everything in subjection to Him. Verse 8. We don't see God's final full plan in living, in vivid living color. But, the writer of Hebrews says, we see Him. We see the man. We see Jesus. And so this brings us to the last reason we have to just join the choir, belt out God's praise today. It's this... It's the fact that the shoe of all things fits the foot of Christ. The shoe of all things fits the foot of Christ. Ephesians 1.22 Because of Christ's suffering and His death, Jesus has been crowned with glory and honor and reigns already over the created order. And He will bring many sons to glory to share with Him in that reign. So we don't enjoy yet the destiny that's been mapped out for us in Psalm 8, but the Son of Man does. And, and that gives us rock-solid hope that this will be our experience. When the, what the first Adam lost, the second Adam, the true image of God, He restores. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24 then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. 
The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. That's a quote. I mean, this, the, the point of Hebrews 2, the point of 1 Corinthians 15, the point of Ephesians 1 there, it's this. Psalm 8 is not a pipe dream for us. It's not. We don't see it full-blown yet, but we see Jesus. He's gone before us. One man is already reigning. And we have the assurance that we will one day reign with Him as well. Revelation 5.10 He has made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. We can be confident, brothers and sisters, of our royal future because Jesus has already begun enjoying it for us. He's gone before us. Well, just a, just a few final thoughts before we, before we sing and, and dismiss here. I, I, these are just kind of some bullet points. How do we respond to a psalm, this, this particular psalm, praise psalm? Uh, a few things. These are sort of random, but I hope I'm uh, thinking about these this week. One, don't, don't worship on idol. Um, I don't just mean singing either. I'm not talking about that, but I would include that. I mean, don't engage in any part of our corporate worship or even personal, private worship. But I mean thinking primarily of our corporate gathering and we're called to come together on the Lord's Day to worship the Lord. But don't worship on idol. I'm not talking about emotions and, 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 and physical expressiveness, though that we should be physically expressive and our emotions should show up in our worship. But not minimizing those things, but I'm just saying, let your heart soar on lofty biblical thoughts of the majesty of God. And, and open up the throttle. Let her rip. Take worship. Again, not just singing seriously. It's warfare. It's powerful. It's, it's potent. And so, don't hold back. Second, don't, don't buy into the absurdity of evolution, um, which denies that we are created in God's image, or of any worldview that would deny that. Uh, I, I realize some of you may hold to that, and you may be skeptical of the Bible and creation account, and we're glad you're here. I'm not trying to poke fun or, or, or minim. I mean, I'm honored, we're honored to have you with us, but... We're, again, we're going to be in Genesis. I invite you, if that's you, come be with us. Hear what God has revealed in His Word. But I, I, it's this constant, uh, uh, constant refrain all around us. And just resist it. Let, let the clarity of what God has spoken um, be what guides your thoughts and your understanding of who you are and who the Lord is and how things came into being. Third, on a happier note, enjoy God through His creation. Enjoy it. I mean, not today, but on a nice day, get outside. <laughs> today, watch that fire for hours and be mesmerized by it. But get out, take a hike, go camping, look at the stars, go fishing. Enjoy God through the magnificent wonders He's made. And, 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 and do those things doxologically. Let them do what they did to David and just turn your thoughts and your, your, your words even to, to God and His praises, exalting who He is. 
Another application of this psalm, we get into what is man. Treat every person with value, dignity, and respect as beings created in God's image. John Piper uh, said on this passage, he said, you can't worship and glorify the majesty of God while treating His supreme creation with contempt. So, certainly this means that we as believers who have this clear revelation of God, of who a man is and, and, and why God's created man, that we ought to be the first to oppose any kind of racism or, or sexism or classism or any other ism, chauvinism or anything like that. We don't participate in prejudice and bullying and objectifying women through pornography and on and on. We see people through the lens of the fact that they are image bearers of God. We have this in common with them. We, we share these things. as We have this shared identity as humans. I mean, tomorrow being MLK Day, it's just a good, it's good to remember this. We're, we're, we're all created in the image of God. And, and realizing that an, is an antidote to any kind of racial prejudice and bigotry that, that lingers in our hearts, any sense of superiority, it's cancer to us and to our, and to our culture, and to the church, and to our nation, and in the world. And then next, equally as important, stand firmly against the horrors of abortion as you stand compassionately by the image bearers who've had abortions or who are considering having abortions. That baby in the womb is created and is, bears the image of God. There's just no other way to understand that. And that voiceless life needs protection. That mother and the father um, and the practitioners, they are also image bearers of God. And so let that regulate how you respond to um, the great need for advocating for life, all life. And then last, and we've already said this, but look to Jesus, the true image of God, the exact representation of God's nature. I mean, this psalm ought to, ought to not just turn us to the stars and not just turn us in on ourselves, but the, the, the point that David is, how conscious he was this or not, it points us to Christ. We see Jesus. We trust Him. We look to Him. And so, so we, we don't just have um, uh, some abstract exclamation, but when, when we enter this psalm and we leave under this banner in this psalm, uh, we, we say this of Jesus. And I want us to to say that together. So stand with me now. The music team, you guys can, can come on up. And I want us to once again uh, exclaim what we've already exclaimed in this psalm. We won't read the whole passage, but just that refrain that begins and ends it all. Let's say this together and go. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. Amen.